Good morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. I'm your host, Phil Coover. The Real Estate for Breakfast podcast is a Chicago-centric commercial real estate podcast which presents real estate professionals and attorneys to create thoughtful commentary on current real estate issues, explanations of sophisticated problems, current developments, and entertaining discussion. This podcast is a mixture of the real estate business and law. Today we have a really cool topic. We're going to talk about co-living and what co-living means for the commercial real estate space. A lot of people have talked about co-working over the past few years, but our guest today, Susan Charkson, is with Cushman and Wakefield, and she, Susan founded KIGCRE in 2015, and then that company was acquired by Cushman and Wakefield in 2018. She has over 30 years of experience of real estate um, in the industry, both the pr- private and the public sector, and she's just she's a managing director with Cushman Wakefield, and she's sort of the four leading expert on the co living and how to handle co living in the commercial real estate space. As we'll get into, I I think this will be a great topic. I love talking about generational demographics and what the millennials are doing, and so I think it'll be great to have her on to kind of walk us through. What is co-living? Why are people doing it? And uh, what types of buildings are being retrofitted or developed to handle co-living spaces? So super excited about having her on. Uh, before we get into the interview, if anyone wants to reach out to me, feel free to email me at pcoover at clarkhill.com. Uh, I'm a member with, with the firm clarkhill.com. It's a national real estate firm. It has over 650 uh, attorneys and professionals across 25 offices, three different countries, and we, we handle all types of, of real of legal work so we can handle whatever needs you have we have a deep bench and we're happy to hear from you coming up next susan charkson of cushman and wakefield good morning this is real estate for breakfast podcast i'm your host phil coover Today we have Susan Charkson on the show. Susan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Susan, you're a managing director with Cushman and Wakefield. I am. And you were previously one of the founders of KIG CRE. Yes, a multifamily brokerage firm here in Chicago that we built around data and understanding the insights that data give you. Fantastic. And um, prior listeners of the show will remember I had one of Susan's partners, Todd Stofflet, on the show. and uh, But now we have Susan in her new role at Cushman and Wakefield, newish, newish, nine months in. Uh, but you had a fantastic concept you wanted to talk about. It's co-living. So tell us. So, yeah, we we like the space very much. I think that it's something, co-living is certainly something that is an emerging niche asset class today, but I think it is gaining steam relatively quickly for some very basic reasons. Um, one is just the affordability factor in all the gateway cities in the country. Um, as a general rule, in the last five years, in all the gateway markets, which are Chicago, Boston, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, New York, San Francisco, L.A., Seattle, Miami, um, Denver, depending on what day of the week it is. Um, <laughs> and on an average, those rents over the last five years have grown by 20%. 
Wow. And when you look at what wages have grown over the last five years, it's one and a half to three percent, depending on which part of the country you live in. So that triangle, that gap between what you make and what it costs to rent in major markets is doing nothing but expanding. Yeah, no, it, it almost seems, I have two sisters-in-law that are younger and they they moved to New York years ago, and it seems like people in New York City used to be doing co-living kind of just together, not not officially. That's right. <laughs> it's not a new concept. Co-living is, you know, as old as man. Um, it used to be generational living. You'd live with your grandparents and your aunts and uncles and your siblings. Um, certainly across Europe, that was the case. But co-living is not a new concept. It's just now, because of technology, able to be an organized concept. You know, we have two kids, and... We have three kids. One lives in Berkeley and two are in New York. And our son did co-living all on his own. He found an apartment by online and he found a roommate online. And I said, don't you want to meet him first? He said, as long as he pays his rent, I don't care. Yeah. And so he wasn't looking for a roommate per se for camaraderie as much as he was looking at, I need, I want a bigger apartment. The only way I can afford that is with someone else helping to pay. So tell us about what co-living means in this new modern form and just from a basic perspective, what are people doing? What do the spaces look like? Sure. So uh, co-living is um, an extended version of being able to be in a larger apartment but only paying your portion of the rent. And so typically these are four bed, four bath pods where everybody has a private bedroom and bathroom and then they all share a living room, dining room, and kitchen. Um, you rent it by the bed, meaning if if you and I were roommates, if you don't pay, I still only have to pay my part. Right. I don't I'm not responsible for any other rent in that. But the good news is I get a larger unit with a larger living room and dining room and kitchen area and I still have a private bedroom and bathroom. Well, that is attractive. I mean, there's many people have horror stories of the roommate not paying the rent. Yes. Uh, many, many parents <laughs> who are the ones signing for leases for these young Gen Z and the early young millennials. So who are some of the leaders in this space? Um, so we um, surveyed everyone. It's very interesting because everybody then, after we published this paper, reached back out to us to give us their updated numbers and pipeline. Um, we certainly like Common in this space. We think their operating system is one of the best. They're based in New York. Um, they, uh, their tenants are members and they don't call them house uh, apartments or buildings, they call them homes. So we, we like Common very much. We think PMGX does a good job in terms of communal activities and the socialization factor that's involved with all of these. Um, there is Quarters and Medici with money out of Germany in this space. Ali is in this space. The Collective is in this space. There's a young company called Star City on the West Coast um, that has gained a lot of traction, a lot of momentum. So, you know, I think, and I don't know if you can quote me on this, but in the back of this somewhere. Um, yeah, so we've gone from an average of 62 bed count to an average of 180. And so that's that's yeah. phenomenal. In just in the last year, that jump has happened, and that's because of all these operators looking for market share. And if you're an operator out there and you're not in Susan and Cushman's materials, <laughs> then reach out to Susan. And so absolutely, you know, we'd, we'd love to have it. <laughs> is this available for the public? It is. If you paper? go to Cushman and Wakefield site, um, I should probably know that off the top of my head, and I can certainly send that to you, but. If you go to Cushman and Wakefield site and enter co-living in the search bar, it'll pop right up. 
All right, and so we'll have a link in our, our show notes to Cushman's site and to Susan's uh, contact information or whatever she is willing to let us share. Um, so anyway, but by way of background, what we're looking at is a really um, in-depth analysis of the state of co-living right now. And you guys do a great job of going through saying the players, saying uh, why it's happening, giving the statistics on where we're seeing co-living in the major cities. And and really, this is one of my favorite topics is just talking about the generational differences and what sure. millennials are doing. Um, but I should ask, though, I am assuming this is pretty much restricted to millennials, but are other demographics doing this? You know, it's interesting because that's everybody's first comment um, and initial thought, but when you look at the data in it, um, there are it is across age sectors. Seniors in particular are a big and growing part of co-living um, as they either downsize or they're widow or widowed. Um, they, you know, and they are adjusting to a new lifestyle. In urban areas, we're seeing seniors, certainly baby boomers over 68, certainly start to enter the co-living uh, population. Um, millennials make up a good part of this, but growingly is the Gen Z. For every one baby boomer retiring, two Gen Z are entering the workforce. And this generation, Gen Z, has never not known technology. They were born knowing technology, smartphones, apps. And so what's great about that is all of these um, co-living programs are driven by apps. They're all driven by an operating system and an app is that's how you pay your rent. That's how you find out when the knitting circle meets. That's when you find out, does anybody else need to go to the grocery store? I'm going. So all of this is based on technology and apps, which Gen Z is, it's interesting. Millennials demand it. Gen Z don't know not to demand it because they've never not had it. Yeah, right. Isn't that funny? They don't even know what to do if it wasn't available. Right. Um, so, and I, I mean, I imagine there's a couple different benefits to it. I mean, if you're a parent, it's probably safer than just having your kid sure. live, pick a random roommate in New York City. Sure. <laughs> you know, so, so you're vetted like you are any other apartment. You've got a background check and you've got a credit check. So, you know, there is some vetting process that goes with this. They don't, none of them match roommates per se. They don't ask if, you know, do you like noise or are you a morning person or a night person are you neat or are you tidy they don't there is no matching in it they say i have a three bedroom with a bed open in 407 or I have a four bedroom on 802 and you can go see the unit and see the view and decide which one you want to join yourself okay so are they i guess maybe i was in my mind it was going to be a long hallway <laughs> and there would be individual rooms and then a shared bathroom or living space, but are they more three bedroom, four bedroom units that are Yes, now? they're typically like a four bedroom unit, four bedroom, four bath unit to one living room, dining room, and kitchen. And then there are some super pods that are 10 and 12 units, 12, 10 or 12 bedrooms with ensuite bathrooms with a much bigger living room, dining room, and kitchen. Um, kind of reminds me of college space your junior year yeah. when you rent that first apartment and you have seven or eight or ten friends all living together right um but typically they're four bedroom four bath um, okay. pods so it's not 
just a dorm room no. for older people no. because it's, it doesn't have that long hallway. No. Now across stuff. Europe, that that style is more acceptable, particularly in Ireland. I was talking to a developer in Ireland last week, and that is the model that they're using there. Um, but he is also right across from Facebook in Dublin, and so they have a lot of people that've got a house. Mm. That, that's but that's nice not location. the typical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not the typical layout here in the states. I, when I first heard about co-living, we had um, an attorney who was here, and she got a job with WeWork, uh-huh. and so they were gonna, they wanted her to go out to, um, to New York to train for a couple months and to be there to kind of go back and forth, and um, so she, I think she was staying in the We Live that they have sure. in New York. So I mean, it's also got an application for short-term rentals. They do, and so we work and we live are part of the same parent company, and um, while we like the we live model, we th- there's some room here in this space for other operators, certainly, who have been equally well-funded, Commons well-funded, PMGX is well-funded, but it's the same thing between co-living across this environment is the same thing as a typical rent, meaning you pay the landlord, as opposed to the WeWork model, where WeWork is the master lease and then you pay WeWork rent. That's not how co-living works. You pay the owner of the building directly. Hmm. Does that make sense? So is it possible for a private owner, like let's say we bought a building, we invested, and then do you hire one of these operators to come in and retrofit your building? Um, Or they're built, they're purpose built is typically today how that is happening with the new construction. They're actually built for co-living. And so they all have what's called a PIP or a property improvement plan that they give to developers to say, uh, the, the kitchen countertop has to be so many lineal square feet because of how many people live in the building. A bedroom can't be any smaller than, I don't know, 85 square feet, whatever the number is. Right. And so you build to that almost like you would build to the hotel model, if that makes sense. Mm. So these operating companies are like flags. They're brands like a, like Hyatt, Marriott, Weston. So Common, PMGX, Ali, The Collective, Star City, they're all brands that you hire them to run the building and manage the building, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. When you said hotel model, that helped frame it, Mm -hmm. for me at least, Mm -hmm. when you have the the operator entity come in. Um, So when I was reading the data about the rising student loans mm-hmm. that millennials and Gen Z are uh, encumbered with. And the, it, to me, this is partially a story about the wealth disparity in the country, as well as you know, problem solving for what these, what these generations are. Like you're saying, growing up with technology, wanting amenities, but simply not having the resources. Right. Uh, in order to afford those things that that previous generations have been able to do. So I think, you know, that's a very valid point, Philip, and that's why this this concept is here to stay, in our opinion. It solves an affordability issue um, in every major market across the city. So the average millennial, and depending on what gear you use, there's between 74 and 78 million millennials. So if you take all of the student debt in the country and you divide it by the 74 million millennials, in rough 
terms, in rounded terms, that's $38,000 worth of student loans per millennial. They pay it off at $393 a month. That means it's taking them 14 years to pay off student debt. That makes you very, one, you can't save, so you're not buying a house if you're paying off debt. And two, you're very rent conscious because you know you have that $393 payment every month. Mm -hmm. And so when you combine that with the fact that Millennials and uh, Gen Z coming out of school typically make between 60 and 80% of AMI, depending on which city you live in. In San Francisco, it's 120% of AMI. But in the city of Chicago, 60% of AMI is $37,000 to $41,000. And so when you look at the fact that if if you pay over 30% of your income, you were technically rent burdened. And so when you start dividing $37,000 by 12 months, and then you've got to take food out, transportation mm-hmm. to work, blah, 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 it's, it doesn't leave a lot left for rent, even in the city like Chicago. And so these yeah. millennials are going to continue to need housing alternatives that provide an affordable aspect to it. Yeah, because it's really uh, an issue in prior Generations, what you if you couldn't afford living in the city, you'd move to the suburbs. But had, as someone who moved to the suburbs a few years ago, cars cost a lot of money, right? And so did and gas. So does time. And so does the train. And so does time. Yeah. Time costs money. Yeah, mm-hmm. tremendous amount. And so you know, the, the, this really does solve a real problem: is that you have to live near the work, or you're really spending a lot of time and money on transportation. Um, so and one of the number one, one, one of the things that the National Apartment Association did a survey, um, and the choice of millennials was to live close to work and travel for entertainment, not live close to entertainment and travel for work. And I mean travel, get to work every day, not get on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And so if you're working downtown, living in the suburbs isn't a real option for you if, if uh, what you're after is being able to come, come and go from work on a relatively easy manner. Right. right. Yeah. Completely. And that's defined by 20 minutes, by the way. However you get to work. Ride, walk, bike, train, bus, cab, 20 minutes. Which is pretty restrictive in Chicago. Oh, exactly. Because I used to live in Lincoln Square, mm-hmm. and I know that that is that's, the city, mm-hmm. but that's a good 50 minutes on the brown line. On a good day. On a <laughs> <Yeah>. good day. <laughs> so, you know, who are – you're with Cushman and Wakefield. Mm-hmm. Um you know, who are you guys talking to the most? You, you you work with these companies? Are you talking to the private landlords or developers who are just looking at their options? Who are you helping um, and to consider this as an option for their building? Um, it's funny you should ask that. Uh, we're um, in the middle of figuring out um, a partner right now. Someone's approached us to help them. Um, we the good thing about Cushman Wakefield is there's 47,000 people, 650 offices, so we have a big distribution channel um, that we are going to be putting a program together to put out to all of our investment sales and capital markets people to help find land and developers to build product, um, and we are putting that platform together uh, for a particular client that I won't mention today. Yeah. Well, you know, if you if you we continue to talk and you want to mention it, feel free. <laughs> um, but it kind of reminds you of four or five years ago. There was a a brokerage company who, I, I, in my mind at least, fair or not, was leading the charge towards the the open office concept, mm-hmm. and 
you know, maybe that was even a few years longer than that ago. But, um, you know, I, I see you and I see Cushman as really the forerunners in this growing market. Is the only, you're the only person I know that's really talking about this in a sophisticated way. Um, it, it has really done the analysis. I mean, this, this presentation is very extensive. It really helps understand. I, I'm not going to say I didn't know that there was as big of a need for it, but you read this like, wow, there's really a need for a solution here just in terms of the geography for it. Yeah. Yeah, it's been very, um, uh, when you look at the data, part of it has been exactly what we thought it would be, but some of it is surprising, like when we talked about seniors and their need for housing like this. That's something that wouldn't normally occur to you, but when you look at the data, that is certainly a growing market for co-living. Yeah. Um, so do you... Do you just do you anticipate that there will be a lot of development in these major markets in the next few years? Yeah, you know, I think um, when you look at what the pipeline is for all of these um, these operators, you know, when you put it into perspective, there's over 107 million traditional rental apartments. There are another 790,000 student housing apartments. 20,000 micro units, and they're only today 3,300 3, co-living beds. So when you look at the vector of how much room there is to grow in this, that 3,300, we think in the next five years, will be close to 20,000. That is astounding. That is astounding. Well, well hey, I, I want to talk to you just a little bit about um, your background. I just okay. wanted everyone to know how... A little bit more about Susan. So <laughs> you, you helped found KIG in 2015. Yes, we founded a brokerage firm based on data. And uh, our first hire was a broker, but our close second hire was a data scientist. You, nobody needs more data. They need the data turned into insights that help make better decisions. And so we were a very early mover in understanding big data and how does that how does that, with technology, play a role in commercial real estate? So we founded KIG 2015. We sold it. We merged with Cushman Wakefield in October of 2018. All uh, nine of us made the trek over to West Wacker, and it's been fantastic. Also, 2017, 2016, I was a co-founder of Anoto Inc., which is a uh, commercial real estate platform that does automated underwriting for the multifamily space. And uh, that was also played a role in understanding how does data work and how does that affect the decisions you make in commercial real estate. That is really interesting. So when you merged to, to Cushman, did you bring some of the, the data and the programs that you had created? Um, we have some you? proprietary software through KIG. We've, for example, we've mapped every piece of dirt in uh, Cook County. We can tell you who owns it, how much debt's on it, what the real estate taxes are, what the chances are of it being upzoned, which aldermanic ward it's in, what are the properties to the right and left of it. Um, that's all proprietary, proprietary software we, we built up through KIG. And so all of that kind of thought process and all of those normal ways of doing business have followed us, have accompanied us to Cushman and Wakefield. Yeah, it's really cool. I, mean, I had heard about that uh, before you and I ever mm -hmm. met, that you guys had that mm -hmm. program, you had that information mm -hmm. in Cook County. So it it's really, really cool and um, great foresight you had 
to invest in data scientists. You know, we, I imagine when you're starting a company, dollars are tight. And so it to was make 25% of our budget and it was worth it. Yes, it was. It was a big number and it was worth it. Definitely worth it. Where do you find a data scientist? Um, you look long and hard for them because uh, the good ones are far and few between. Um, it'll be easier in the next five years. There'll be a whole rash of people graduating with degrees in data science or in uh, data analytics or data engineering. But right now, across the country, there's a huge demand for that skill set in that degree. Um, so we were lucky we found someone. That's really cool. Well, tell us, what did you do before KIG? I have worked on the development side, um, mostly for multifamily and mixed use. I've worked in the financing side of it. My first job was at the Talbot Hotel downtown working for the Cromwell family. And while I love the hotel business, we started renovating units and I loved the real estate more than the hotel business. Um, and that was a pleasure. That job was a true pleasure to go to. Um, and from then I've worked in development for developers across the country, Chicago, Miami, East Coast. I've done land from Tacoma, Washington to North Carolina. Um, so it's been interesting to work in all the different aspects of it, the development of it, the financing of it. I was never a property manager. I think that that's a, those, those people work harder than all of us put together every day, mm-hmm. trying to keep tenants happy. That's yeah. an uphill battle every day for them with a smile on your face. Right, yeah. <laughs> Does, it doesn't matter what asset class. No. Um, How'd you get into commercial real estate in the first place? I'm always curious because you know historically there hasn't been a lot of college programs, which is why no, there haven't. You and I share an interest in in working right. with Roosevelt University, the Marshall right. Bennett Institute. Um, but yeah, so I always I'm always curious how people got into so, commercial real estate. Um, I did my undergraduate work at the University of Illinois. I'm actually on the Gies Business School Advisory Board, Alumni Advisory Board, um, and. I then went to Europe on an inter, a Rotary International Fellowship, did my graduate work in Europe. Um, and when I came home, there was a recession. And the true first job before the Talbot Hotel, I was a night auditor at the Orrington Hotel in Evanston. I worked from 11 at night till seven in the morning, making $5 an hour. Um, they gave me, after 30 days, they asked me to be the night manager, not just the night auditor. and. They gave me a raise from $5 to $5.25 an hour. And I said, you can keep your quarter if I don't have to wear your polyester uniform. Um, and <laughs> from that, that job lasted three months. And from that, then I went to the Tablet Hotel. So okay. I really just fell into real estate. I didn't grant my degrees were in finance, but I didn't say, hey, I want to go into real estate. In fact, when I left the Talbot Hotel, I went to work with Jules Marling. Um, and Sudler Marling at the time and worked on 700 North Michigan. And when I went home and told my parents I wanted to be in real estate, they said, um, selling houses, is, you'd be really good, Susie, at selling houses. Like, no, that's not the real estate I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm right. talking about commercial real estate. And so it's taken a while for that to catch on as something you could get a degree in. And um, I think for all of us in commercial real estate, there are lots of things to like. It's a big, complex, moving puzzle. Um, and getting all those pieces lined up is like a big fancy Rubik's cube, and it feels so good when you do. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand that. Kind of an 
It's a little bit nerdy, but I love surveys. Uh-huh. I have this client that's uh, you know, some developer clients, and I just love getting in, just looking at surveys. I grew up loving maps, so I just I, I like the whole, I like everything about it, and especially closing a deal, like you say, when you feels good. Nudge everything together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've noticed, as I just mentioned, that you, you do work with a lot of students, mm-hmm. and so is there anything that you would say to someone starting out in real estate? Uh, sure. I ask this from time to time with mm-hmm. people on the podcast. So, so um, as you said, um, we're both on the Marshall Bennett Real Estate Institute Board for Advisory Board for Roosevelt University. And one of the reasons that was important to me um, is that I, I'm a big believer in representation. Um, and you can't have diversification without representation. And commercial real estate for a long time has been an old boys network. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that except for that that's all you'll get at the table then is old boys. And so it's important to me through programs like Roosevelt University that we have diversification, that we have minorities, we have people of color, we have women, um, that we have all of these voices from different backgrounds weighing in on the decisions that are being made that affect all of us. They, they affect where we live and they affect where we work. Um, so I would say representation is a big touch point for me. Fantastic. Well, if anyone wants to learn about co-living, uh, what's the best way to reach you? Um, you, you can certainly um, email me. My email is susan.jarkson at cushwake.com. That's S-U-S-A-N dot T-J-A-R-K-S-E-N at cushwake.com. Com. And I know it's a beautiful Friday. It is. So we're, we're not going to take up too much more of your time. And it's also the Pokemon convention. So I know. You know I can't wait to get down there. People, a lot of excitement down there. Um, but uh, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. No information contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or other professional advice, and no professional relationship of any kind is created between you, the podcast host, the guests, or Clark Hill, PLC. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and the guests and not necessarily Clark Hill PLC.